All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. I'm Dean, and I'll be your, your conversational tour guide tonight. And tonight, we got another great show, Leadership, Leadership, Leadership. We're going to be talking about policing reimagined. We First, we have Chief Ed Denmark of Harvard, Massachusetts PD. So not Harvard University PD, there's actually a town of Harvard, Massachusetts. So I'm going to go ahead and bring Ed up. Ed, how you doing? Great, Dean. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, man. Thank you so much for, for uh, joining us tonight. And if you could, just tell us a little bit about, about yourselves, how long you've been in the job, and what you got cooking right now. Uh, sure. So uh, as you just said, I'm Ed Denmark. I've been on the job now, uh, believe it or not, 31 years. Uh, long time now. So I started in the town of Air, Massachusetts. Uh, I worked there uh, for about 11 years. Then uh, I was very young, uh, but I ended up getting a chief's job, chief's position. Uh, in Sterling, Mass. I worked there for two years as the chief. And then in 03, I landed my current position uh, as the chief in Harvard. So aside from the, you know, my, my full-time gig, I do a lot of training uh, nationally, internationally, do some consulting. So right now we're working on, uh, you know, kind of this whole, you know, theme tonight, the policing reimagined. I'm really focusing on what are the things we need to look towards for our training, to for our officers to help us, you know, kind of kind of put forth a better product and hopefully change our culture a little bit. Outstanding. And just to clarify, you've been in the chief position for how long? I've been the chief in Harvard now for eight. Yeah, this is my 18th year in Harvard, but total I've been a chief for 20 of my 31 years. Wow. That's incredible. So I am going to circle back to that because we got a lot to talk about. And I'd also like to bring on Deputy Chief Ruben Galindo from the Northeastern University Police. How you doing, Chief? Deputy Chief? I'm doing great, Dean. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. I know you got a lot going on. You probably just finished up with your commencement type activities on campus. Mm -hmm. So this is you, you, normally time for you to kick your feet up and uh and take a deep breath and reassess. Well, so listen, nothing more important than being on this show and, and trying to have these conversations that are so important. But my name is Ruben Galindo. Um, I'm from South Florida, born and raised in Miami, son of Cuban immigrants. Um, started my career rather early. I was 20 and started back in 1982. So, I'm, you know, going on, you know, soon to be 40 years. Uh, uh, started that career for the same reason the majority of us start this career, right? With, with the true intention of helping people, helping the community. And actually, my motivation was... Um, some riots we had back in Miami back in 1980 that, you know, I kind of saw my city burn somewhat and um, I decided maybe I can make a difference and I, and I jumped into the profession. I had 31 great years in Miami with Miami-Dade Police Department, um, you know, very challenging assignments. I ended up over there as a director of the training institute, big institute. We train about 18,000 people a year out of that wow. uh, complex. Um, before that, I was a major in charge of Miami International Airport, so I was a commander in charge of all operations, security, anti-terrorism. And before that, probably my most challenging slash rewarding uh, assignment, which I was a captain over in our Liberty City District. Uh, one of the most challenging locations really to, to do policing, but the most rewarding if you do it right with the right intention and you value people and you engage them in the process. I've been here at Northeastern now for about uh, six and a half years. I'm the director of their uh, police department. So the public safety construct kind of does it, emergency management, international security, and a police department. Uh, rather large, there's over. Um, and what we got going now, Dean, is, is uh, making sure I, I can do my part here before I retire for the second time and make a difference in, in this profession. You know, we joined in a police academy, joined up with Cambridge Police. We run our own academy out of the university, and we're really trying to um, kind of evolve what training looks like and what is it we're trying to accomplish. So when you train people a certain way, what, what is the outcome you're looking for? So we've introduced a unique uh, perspective to that academy. We've just finished up our third class, and we it's an MPTC academy, so we train officers from all over the region. And the feedback is outstanding, and and you know that's something we can discuss a little later if you like. But again, thanks for thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So we'll jump into all that. We'll talk about what the MPTC is and and the role they play, and then what's going on with the uh, the impending post commission as well. But before we kick things off, I do have a video that I think is pertinent to what we're talking about tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and cue that up.
of sorrow, one of the more poignant moments came this morning when police chief David Brown appeared at a briefing. His words were simple, direct, and powerful. This is not the first time the chief has dealt with loss on the job and in his personal life. Rahema Ellis has more for us tonight. We're hurting. Our profession is hurting. In so many ways, for Dallas Police Chief David Brown, this tragedy is personal. There are no words to describe the atrocity that occurred to our city. At 55 years old, he's also chief of more than 4,000 officers. The married father is a self-described loner in a very public job. I, David Brown. Less than two months after he was sworn in as chief six years ago, he was tested in both a professional and personal way. It appears the shooter is going to be David O'Neill Brown Jr. Chief Brown's only son and his namesake was himself killed after he gunned down two other people, one of them a police officer. I remember closing my son's casket in the church. I remember sitting at the burial site and everything else was a blur. The 30-year police veteran has also endured the violent deaths of his brother and his former police partner. While sometimes abrasive, he's also known for his kindness, often posting pictures on social media showing his dedication to the people of Dallas. We are not going to let a coward who would ambush police officers uh, change our democracy. And tonight, when his city needs it the most, he's a strong, steady voice of compassion and concern, especially for his fellow officers. All I know is that this, this must stop, this divisiveness between our police and our citizens. Chief Brown has dedicated his whole life to one job. But I could just tell you, I've never been more proud of a police officer and being a part of this great noble profession. A department that has been put to its greatest test with its chief commanding the way. Rahima Ellis, NBC News. Hey, NBC News fans, thanks for checking out our YouTube. All right. So, gentlemen, any thoughts on that video? Very powerful video. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Ed. What, do you, what, did you, what did you think about that video, and how do you think that's pertinent to what we got going on today in policing? I think that the most important thing for me in that video is it shows everybody the human side of this business. You know, when, when people look at, you know, uh, the police or the communities of color or, or whatever, this broad brush that they paint everybody with disregards the humanity of each individual involved. And I think that, 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 that video with Chief Brown really shows to me, it's an opportunity for the public to see that, you know, this is, this is a man. This is a man with a family. This is a man who suffered tragedy. But this is a man who also cares deeply about his community. And if you look at Chief David Brown and, and what he stands for, the overwhelming majority of people like you, me, and Ruben that put the uniform on every day do that same thing. And I think, and I think that's missed quite often. And when I, when I say that in some groups, you know, that's, you know, that, you know called a police apologist or, or, or whatever, uh, they, they don't have the opportunity to see that side of, of cops. And, and when I hold the mirror up to our profession, I say that's our fault. We haven't done a good enough job at showing them that side of us and who we are. And until we can start being better with that, they're never going to know who we are. All right, fair enough. Ruben, same question. Jump on in, please. Yeah, I mean, look, it gave me flashbacks is my reaction. I've attended too, way too many funerals of my brothers and sisters back in Miami and even here in the time that I've been in Massachusetts. So um, it's heartbreaking. It, it, it's um, difficult to watch, obviously. And, and the sad part is, Dean, um, we're seeing more of it now. You know, I think this this movement against the police, you know, to fund the police, do away with the police, it's only hurting two groups, right? The inner city, and we see the, the, the enormous increase in homicide rates in many cities across this nation and you know you know who it's affecting the most it's the inner cities the youth that live there um and then you know this this attack on, on police these random attacks that are occurring so it, it's sad you know like like ed was saying that we've gotten to this point but listen there there's an answer on the horizon and i think once we open our hearts and open our minds to 
looking at ourselves for a little bit and understanding what can we do different, what can we do better, how can we start bridging the, the relationships we're back with our communities like they were many, many years ago, I think we'll begin to find the answer to this. But, you know, this is happening almost every day, uh, Dean, and we're seeing these videos of officers being attacked and so forth. So, um, I mean, it's, it's one heck of a way to start the show, man. You got to say. <laughs> well, it, gentlemen, the name of the show is Difficult Conversations. Yeah, so yeah. We, uh, there's not going to be too many softballs here. But again, yeah. at the end, I think most people find that these conversations are cleansing and I think that people are dying for these conversations. So just like you said, Ruben. So policing reimagined. So let's jump into it. How I came up with this topic for this show was based off a conversation that I had with Ed uh, a few months back when he and I spoke very candidly about, you know, I, I was very curious. I was exploring my curiosity about his journey and where he had been. And he shared something with me that almost knocked me out of my chair and I'm a large man. That's not easy to do. So he told me that when he was younger and he was brand new, like most of us, he was excited. He was energetic about being out there. And they used to post the arrest numbers and the citation numbers, I believe you said, Ed, on the backboard of the station. And it was actually a competition to see who could make it to the top of that list. And then you shared with me somewhere along the line, you realized that maybe that wasn't the best way to serve the community. So, Ed, can you talk a little bit more about that and and how that serves to the uh, policing reimagined mindset? Yes. Yeah, you know, when I first started, that was that's how you measured your worth. And that's one thing we know about, you know, psychologically, everybody wants to have value in their job and they want to be respected in their job and they want to perform well. So in our, our culture uh, has developed over time that that's that's how you proved your medal. That's who you were. If you made the most arrests, if you made the, you know, wrote the most tickets, you know, then you got the, the sexiest assignments. Then you got to move into some of the other things. And over time, I just, for me internally, I started to experience some kind of some inner conflict within myself that I felt like I wasn't comfortable with the way I was treating people because I, I had, a, I recognized that these were just decent people trying to go to work, trying to do the right thing. And I'm making sport of them for the purpose of making myself feel better. And that didn't sit well with me, you know? So, you know, and to have that conversation back then, we're talking, you know, early, early nineties, you know, well, you know, what are you soft? Or do you, it wasn't about being soft. It was, what are we accomplishing here? You know, and I, I tell the story about, uh, there was a, a guy that I uh, stopped late, late at night working third shift at a manufacturing job, no license, you know, rest him. And then a few weeks later, now this is New England. I'm sitting on my same spot about two in the morning, and here comes this guy on his mountain bike in a snowstorm, riding to work. And that that hit me. I was like, man, what was it worth it? This guy's just trying to go to work. You know? So it's it's those little things like that that over time, like I just thought man, we 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 could be doing something better. There's got to be a better way to figure this out. And for them to want us to to make inroads with our communities and talk about community policing and all this stuff, but at the same time have us out there being the enforcement arm for administrative things like licenses and stuff like that. The two things don't mesh. So that's kind of my perspective on it. That's that's incredible. That story you kept in your pocket. You didn't tell me that one before. Yeah. So just to clarify, the guy that you had arrested was the guy on the bike yep. going the same route, clearly heading to work. Yep. Wow. Ruben, floor's yours. Yeah, man. So listen, th this is where the conflict begins, right? And we can get into mental health and the issues we're having in policing right now. But you enter a police department with one idea, right? Which is, hey, I'm here to help people. That, that's why I joined your police department. I've, I've had hundreds, if not thousands of interviews with people. And they, they all, we all say that. But then you go into an organization that has a whole different mindset, which is enforcement um, and, and, you know, stats you know even till today we're still being guided by compstat and to me compstat killed community policing by the way because ruben, they're so can you, for those who are, ruben really quick let, let me jump in can you just tell what compstat is there's a lot of people that aren't familiar with that in the yeah, so so compstat is a process by which you know depending on the size of of your department you bring in your commanders and you review the statistics the crime statistics for the last month and you expect each commander to give you an explanation of what they've done. And if the reduction has not occurred, 
then there's a little bit more pressure on that commander to do better next month. And it can become somewhat challenging, right? And, and you can hear cases where in New York, they were falsifying statistics because the commanders didn't want to get in trouble when they went to the meeting, right? The problem is that was introduced a little bit after community policing. And, and we, we went away from building bridges to putting a cop on a dot with the hope of reducing a crime statistic, right? And then the more arrests you made and it had an impact on, on the crime, then obviously the most successful you were. So I think, you know, that, that kind of steered us the wrong way. And I said, look, I, I have a saying and I, and I brought it here to Northeastern. And I said, here's the saying, you become what you celebrate. It's really that simple. If, if that's what you're celebrating is the arrest, if you see that your officer of the year is, is the one who made the most arrests or got the most tickets or, or X, Y, Z, then that's going to take over your, your department. Right? That's going to be their motivation, right? If you start celebrating other things, look, and let's make no mistake about it. Crime's going to occur and we, ha we have to take action and we have to be careful in how we do things and use the right tactics and use the right strategies. But let's start celebrating the great stories. And what happens is it's going to start taking over the, the environment of your police department. So, you know, when I joined with Chief Davis at Northeastern about seven years ago, six, seven years ago, that's what we brought to the organization. The only things we're going to discuss in the hallway are the success stories of the individuals that we've been able to lift up, including those we arrested. And this has taken on a, a life on its own. And I'll be real brief on this one. But last week, about a couple of weeks ago, I find out that two of my officers um, uh, engaged with a gentleman by the name of Willie. He's homeless. He's always wanted to live in Tampa. I don't know if it was a Tom Brady thing or the man's actually always wanted to live in Tampa. But my officers grabbed some tickets, put them on a train, bought them some clothes, and sent them to Tampa. Quick story, when he gets to Penn Station, New York, they send him back because he had a, an anxiety attack. The next couple days, my officers buy three tickets to Tampa, go all the way to Tampa and take Willie over to, to see his friends and where he's always wanted to live and take a train back. Now, that's something to celebrate, but there's still departments in this country that would – kind of mock you for doing something like that. All right. our organization, that's all you're going to hear is, is those kind of things. All right, so let me jump in on that. First of all, phenomenal stories. But a question I have like, is, can that be the norm, though? I mean, at some point, there has to be more than that. We can't expect officers. It's not like we're getting rich in this line of work to be digging in our pockets to buy people uh, toys for, for Christmas, turkeys for Thanksgiving, bus tickets, train tickets. At some point... Is there something more sustain sustainable that needs to happen? So there's a question in the chat. Um, it's addressed to Chief Denmark, but I'm going to address it to both of you. Is what can we do differently that we're not doing now? And then I'm going to add to that and say what is sustainable that we can do differently. So Chief Denmark, why don't you jump in on that? I think, I think uh, and I think uh, Deputy Chief Galindo hit it. He nailed it. It's it's about changing mindset. That's what we can do differently. And it's not just a, it doesn't just benefit the community. It benefits us personally. If we change that mindset, you know, we talk about officer burnout and getting, you know, stressed out the job and all that other stuff. It's because we focus ourselves on negative all the time. We run around thinking, and I, I can remember giving, giving myself headaches because I couldn't find something wrong. How messed up is that? Think of I'm riding around on a, on a quiet night with nothing going on. And I'm giving myself a headache trying to find something because I felt like I, I felt like I was doing something. I wasn't doing my job. You know, instead of, you know, instead of celebrating the things of, you know, of who did I help today? How many people did I give directions to? Who did I, who did I give a ride home from the train station? Because I saw him walking and it was pouring rain that night. Those, those, those little things that, as a matter of fact, back up a little bit. I remember almost having to sneak to do those things so I wouldn't get in trouble. You know, Talk super, a little bit about but get in trouble. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're not a taxi service. Things like that, I was told over the years. You know, hey, he, if he's, we're not a taxi service. If they don't, if they can't afford a cab, that's not our problem. Well, yeah, it is our problem. It's 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 a rainy, foggy night, and this guy's going to get smoked walking down the side of the road, and I can get him home and save, you know, help him, help me, help us all, right? But it was a, it was just a, it was a us against them mindset. Mm. Um, and until we start to look at uh, the little things and, and the simple questions, like you know, like Ruben said, the things you celebrate in in the hallway. Or just the, the the things that you discuss, or the, the questions you ask yourself. You know, who at the end of your shift, who did I help today? 
what good things did I do? And reflect on those good things every day. You don't get inundated and you don't beat yourself up because of the, the negatives. Because the day is overwhelmingly positive if you let it be positive. All right. That's a that's a fantastic answer. Ruben, same question. What can we do different that's sustainable? And right. So, you know, obviously the Willie story is an extreme. And, and, and when we found out, we made sure we reimbursed our officers for what they did. But you can lift the person up without having to put them on a train and take them to Tampa, right? I think what we can do different is change the approach by how we engage with people, right? Community policing failed because it didn't have at its core value or at its core foundation, the valuing of human beings, right? We missed that part. We, we threw them in to develop a relationship, but not how valuable people are and how we should respect and treat each other. So what we can do different is start eliminating um, the rhetoric, the cynicism that in, 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 exists in policing, the labels that we've attached to people, you know, the thug, the punk. When, when you when you allow that to take over, and, and we're all introduced in it to that within a couple of weeks of work, right? We learned this whole new language. We don't realize we're doing damage to two people. One, the thug that you think you're engaging with because you've already labeled them and then your approach to them certainly is, a not, is lesser than, correct? But you're hurting yourself as a human being because you fail to develop a relationship with someone who needs help and someone you can, you know, you, you can assist somewhat, somewhat and lift them up, right? The, the equivalent of taking him to Tampa, right? You know, doing something for him, trying to help the young man, you know, good stories like the chief was saying. That has to be the norm within the organization. We, we have hurt ourselves in, in our approach and, and hurt ourselves from a mental health perspective. You know what the antidote to mental health issues are? What's Relationships, that? communication, building a relationship with a person you've never met, right? Learning from them, them learning from you. And now you have somebody in the community that you can say hi to and they wave, right? Do that two, three times a day. And, and over a span of 20, 30 years, I mean, you've got nothing but great memories to take with you. You know, we, we have a mental health crisis in policing with, uh, too many suicides, to be honest, because we have too many empty souls, right? Ooh. Right. When, when you saw George Floyd getting kneeled on, that that you know the officer that you saw, that was just an empty person. He was empty, right? So I think we, we need to redirect what our purpose is in, in policing. Yeah, we, we need to make arrests. We need to be cautious. We need to you know. Uh, be accountable and make sure we're deploying resources the right way. But when the fight's over, the fight's over. And now how can I lift this person up regardless of who he is? When we start doing that, then we might be able to fix ourselves in the same way we're building relationships with the community. All right. Really quick. I'm just going to add to the uh, a log on the fire here. So my aha moment for what you're talking about, where maybe, you know, trying to get as many stats as possible and trying to reach that special place where, and we act as if like there's a way to arrest your way to greatness where you're going to make that thousandth arrest or 10,000th arrest and people are going to stop parading you around the station on their shoulders. But we all know those moments never come. So really quick, my story is this. I was working in a, um, a very busy department and where you got, like Ed was saying earlier, was directly related to what kind of pro productivity you had. So I was trying to arrest or citate or cite or field card my way out of patrol into a specialty unit and i stopped this woman who had just a failed inspection sticker for a car she's in nursing scrubs she's got her placard on and she has two car seats in the back so i stop her she's very polite and i tell her why i stopped her and i you know and where i was i was out of state there were no written warnings it was either a citation or a verbal warning so I told her that, you know, that I intended to cite her for her, um, for her failed re her rejection sticker. I come back up with a citation and she looks at me and says, officer, I'm a single mother. Clearly you can see I'm working. She holds up her name tag. I have two, two children. At the end of the month, there's nothing left. There's nothing left at the end of the month. I know that there's something wrong with my car, but what, what am I supposed to do? If you give me this citation, you are going to financially crush me. And that was my moment. 
when I said, you know what, there has to be something, there has to be something more than this. And I tore the ticket up and I said, listen, I'm not going to give you a ticket. I, I hear you, but I can't promise you're not going to go a block, a mile, 10 miles down the road and somebody else isn't going to see it inside you. I'm just telling you that I can't, I'm not going to give you a ticket based on what you said. I hear you and I want to support you. Um, so you, you can go on, just be careful on your, on your ride. So I just wanted to show you that, that everybody, when it comes to policing reimagined, a lot of people are having these aha moments and realizing that there has to be a better way. Ed, do you want to uh, respond to any of that? Yeah, I think I get that uh, along the lines of what you're saying, and 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 and, and Ruben touched on it earlier. Our language, the, the way we talk, drives the way we think. The way we think drives the way we behave. You know, so just 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 the you know the minute we as police, and again, I don't want to begin to get into the whole political divide of things, but when we start labeling people. Or, 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 you know, or taking people that have a difference of opinion or people that look differently and automatically assign some sort of, you know, cognitive or moral deficiency to them because they don't agree or because they're not like me. We are in trouble as police. Um, and, and I really, and I, and I get this is one of the areas where I catch some, catch some flack. We as the police should not be political at all. And I'm not saying, you know, yes, it's the United States. We all have our individual freedoms. But the minute we pick a side politically, the other side now thinks that they're not getting a fair shake. You know, we look at it and they say, well, well you know, you're, you're, you're the police and you support this candidate. So therefore, you're not going to give us the same treatment that you would give someone else. And that's just human nature. It's that in-group, out-group thinking. And for us to, 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 to get involved politically, I think it's a mistake because it really damages our, our relationships within our communities. All right. Fellas, the chat is, the chat is lighting up right now. Um, I have a great question here. I'm going to start. I'm going to direct this one to Ruben. How hard was it to change officer mindset when they may have been trained or worked at another agency that operates differently than your department? Well, so the way I always see that is this is the purpose and this is the reason why we joined police, right? Was to help people, to engage with people. That, that was how we started. Um, the fact that, you know, we might have worked at a dysfunctional organization with poor leadership, which changed us, you, you can be saved to a certain extent. I can always bring you back, right, to what your initial intent was. You know, we always complain about toxic officers and people, you know, we, we even label our officers. And we don't realize that, you know, we got them out of the academy, fired up and ready to go with, with the, the best intentions. Somebody broke them along the line. Somebody broke them. So, you know, they're, they're worth saving. I think what, what I've noticed in our organization is that once you open the door, right, and once you they know that that's what's going to be celebrated, that's who's going to get promoted, are the ones who really go out of their way to lift up the community, everybody embraces it at that point. And who's benefiting the most, and I already, the community obviously going to benefit because they know, hey, Northeastern here, they're, they're, they're going to really take care of us and you know we can expect great service and respect. But the people who are benefiting the most are the officers because now they're going home with some great heartfelt stories that they can share with their family. They've got support within the organization, right? Because that's really my only purpose as deputy. I'm not, I'm not there to tell people how to do their job. I'm there to make sure they feel safe, they feel valued, they feel secure, they feel they have a voice. And when they walk into the station, it's their safe haven. Because I spent way too many years, Dean, fearing my station. You know, I always used to say I'd rather go to an armed robbery call with four subjects at a bank, right, than being called to the station for unknown reasons. So I, 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 knew my, I knew my abilities there would help me. Man, this, this one was too suspicious at that point. It's like, right? So that, that's the other thing. You know, we had great years. We've had terrible years. And, and I've had the experience of working for some great supervisors and some people who are just abrasive, um, you know, authoritarian and just abusive. Right. So, you know, and, and I think, you know, that is responsible for for several of the suicides, several of the depression and all the anxiety exists is poor leadership and poor guidance. So, you know, we are to blame for that. You know, there, there's still chiefs out there who will slam their hands on a desk and raise their voice and try to intimidate people. And you're really not not really accomplishing it. So, you know, you become what you celebrate. Make sure you hire people 
who value people and make sure you promote those who who can really reinforce the message within the organization. It's that simple. So those are great points. Ed, I want to redirect to you. Same question. How hard is it to change an officer mindset when they may have been trained or worked in another agency that operates differently than your department? Well, I think I think me and uh, me and Ruben are going in the same direction, but I, I get a little different spin on it. I don't change anybody's mindset. I cannot get inside your head and make you be somebody that you're not. What I can do is we can highlight, like I said, celebrate the good things. And, and by nature, we, we want to belong. People want to belong. And if your culture is such that it's a positive one, no one wants to be the outcast. So they will decide on their own that they're going to get on that train. I can't make you. I, can, I can't punish it into you. It's, it's, it's just like, like you said before. We can't arrest our way out of problems. I can't suspend my ways to change. Uh, I can't suspend my way to changing an officer's mindset. They have to embrace the fact that this organization values certain things. And if I want to be part of the fold, they have to make that mindset change themselves. We can't force that. But we have to then make, and we also have to point out when people aren't embracing those values that we that we espouse to be our core. When we are saying we are one thing, but we are not stopping behavior that runs counter to that, we're full of it. We're, we're, we're kidding ourselves. And that's when you get people that are, you know, that stay on the job that that don't necessarily uh, you know, haven't gotten with the program, so to speak. All right. Ed, I'm going to stay with you, and then we're going to go back to Ruben, because this is almost like 1B to that same question. <laughs> so speaking of what, you know, piggybacking off what Ruben said about promoting the proper environment and then promoting people out of that that properly created environment, do you feel that some officers are afraid to let their guard down and that gets in the way of building a relationship within the community? I think if, if officers are afraid, it's because we haven't, created the environment for them to feel safe it's it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a trust issue you can't be yourself or you can't be a you can't be willing to take that risk if you feel like you're putting yourself in jeopardy you know that our over-reliance again I, this is another place where i get my my colleagues you know and i butt heads you know we are so policy driven that people are afraid to make a decision even if it in your gut and in your heart of hearts and in your head you know what you're about to do isn't right in this circumstance. It's going to harm this relationship. It's not going to achieve the outcome that we're looking for. But the policy says we have to do it this way. When you don't have the safety and the trust of your administration or your coworkers to say, hey, you know what? Everything can't be encompassed in an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And we have to trust in each other's abilities and desires and, and values to know that whatever you've decided to do, you're doing because it it's the right thing. If you can build that sort of, you know, that, that trust and comfort level with people, then they're not afraid to let their hair down and, and, and build those relationships. But if, if they're running around in self-protective, self-preservation mode, you're not going to get that. You're going to get policy one, two, three, section A, B, C says I must do X, Y, Z. And that's it. You can't build relationships off that. It's too mechanical. I love it. Ruben? Come on in, man. I know you want in on this. Yeah, so listen, I mean, you know, let your guard down as far as, you know, you're worried that someone's going to attack you, someone's going to hurt you, that, you know, subject's going to jump you. That's one thing. And we, we discussed this earlier off camera, right? None of this affects our tactics, our approach, or, or our officer safety, um, you know, uh, approach to a subject. But there's a time when the threat has minimized to a point where now you can take that second part of your job and bring it on, which is the, you know, what's your story? How can I help here? Right. How'd you get here? And what can I do to, to kind of lift you up? Right. So, you know, I, I think it goes down to what, again, to what the chief was saying. And if that's what's celebrated within the organization, people are going to find opportunities to do it. And, and everyone's going to be sharing this, these stories, it, it, within the organization and after roll calls, et cetera, et cetera. And the chief mentioned a very important point, um, which has to do the cult, with the culture of the organization. It's really who, what's going to kind of weed out the misfits. You know, there, the, at some point you can get into whether there's racism in policing or is there systemic racism in policing? I have a very strong view on this. But me as a chief, I'm not going to be able to identify if we do have a misfit. But if you have a healthy work environment, 
he's going to be exposed by his peers. He'll be exposed. And then this kind of ties into, you know, bystander intervention, where we're expecting our officers to stop other officers from doing things that are improper. You know, if you're if you're waiting for when the officers unlawfully beating a prisoner to grab him by the collar and pull him off, well, then that's way too late. But if you have a healthy organization, you have somebody walk into Roca and say, "Man, I can't believe I had to deal with that thug against yesterday." That's early intervention. That's when, like, hold on a second. That that's not who we are. That's not what we say here. That's hey, man, let's go have some coffee. What's going on with you, right? So you want to catch it early, way early not when something's happening on the street. So that's the benefit of a healthy work environment that's focused on the right thing within an organization is that we're kind of self-cleaning oven, right? There's something in there that doesn't belong. Eventually they have to leave because they feel uncomfortable. And, and also you catch you catch issues early so you can help somebody who may be having trouble at home or you know some issues that he's dealing with or the effects of a major you know trauma or case that they had to deal with. So. You know, like I said, it, it's um, you get the right environment, you're gonna have a lot more benefits than you think you are. Hey, Dean, can I can I pop in something real quick just of to course, follow up please. on that? You know, that's the one thing that I always found baffling too. You know, when 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 we do have those those folks, and we all know who they are in our agencies, who who may be a little heavy-handed, who may be rough around the edges, and we all just kind of let it go, let it go, let it go. And then when that person gets fired, we want to have bake sales and boo-hoo and and, and badmouth the administration for getting rid of them. And I always said, listen, if, if you care that much about your fellow officers, stop them. You know, you know who they are. Don't let them get there. You let them go down the road the entire way. And when they drive off the cliff, you get mad at somebody else for calling them on it. We have every opportunity. Like, like, you know, like Ruben said, Ben, you hear people using that language. You hear people calling names. You hear that racial slur in the locker room. Pump the brakes. Hey, hey hold on a minute. You keep that stuff up, man. You're not going to be here. A, you got to you got to march yourself out of a job, and B, that doesn't represent who we are as an organization. You can't do that here. We don't want you here. And that takes guts. It takes guts. So that's a that's a great redirect. Uh, I just want to jump in here real quick. So um, Fred Leland, I'm just going to shout him out. He's one of the uh, one of the foremost trainers, leadership trainers in Massachusetts. Uh, he says policy driven for sure in too many police organizations. They have become dogma, and police officer discretion suffers. Guidelines are what policies are meant to be, which allows officers to use initiative and creative ways to solve policing problems. So well said, Fred. Uh, then from there, we have a question. So do you believe it is the duty of an organization to inform the community of use of force continuum. So we will go to Ruben first. Ruben, really quick, can you jump in on that? Yeah, so it's all part of transparency. So I, I think it needs to go further than that. You need to share with your communities as we've done at Northeastern through the advisory board, our policies, our approach, um, how our value system is introduced into the majority of our policies. We re rewrote our entire policies. You need to share numbers. And they, they need to be aware of what's happening and how it's happening. Um, again, this all comes down to trusting. If you don't trust me, um, you, no matter what I say, it's not going to work. But if we develop a true relationship, not just me with my peers in, in, in a community, but every single officer with every person they engage with, and over time we start to really increase our trust, then we can have a conversation and I present something to you, you believe me, right? So I'll give you a real quick story of Liberty City 2001 on the night of Martin Luther King's holiday, a block away from Martin Luther King Boulevard, we have a white officer shoot an unarmed black man in a stolen car. They talk about, man, talk about, and, 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 and I was heading home already because the parade was almost finishing and someone called me and I said, I, I know you're kidding. And he goes, no, we're not Captain, come back. But because over the last two or three years, we had developed such a trusting relationship with the community, we didn't have a single broken window, right? But we did things a little different. You know, we're talking back, you know, 19, 18 years ago, as soon as the community leader showed up, I pulled the tape over and brought them right into the crime scene and briefed them. Everybody thought I was nuts, but it's like, now they know what's going on. They can go back out and brief the community. So with trust, when we really trust each other, then, then we're not going to run into some of the problems we're running into. 
All right. You can't okay. wait for the incident to occur to suddenly try to develop a relationship with you. Absolutely. We're going to get there, too, as to uh, building trust ahead of time. Ed, same question. Do you believe it's a duty of the organization to inform the community of use of force continuum? Yeah, again, absolutely. Just a, you know, we read from the same sheet of music here. The community needs to understand everything that we're doing. And, again, and I think we've we've done a poor job over over history of explaining to them, like, we're always so worried that we're going to give up the secrets, <laughs> you know, playing or holding our cards close to the vest and not explaining to them, if you do X, the officer may do Y. It just be very explicit with it and have people understand that this is how this is how this rolls out. But again, it, it's I know we're going to get to it later, but this is all about trust. You know, if you certain agencies, certain officers, there are certain officers, if they use force, the community goes, man, that guy must have done something real bad for him to use force. Mm -hmm. There are other officers that say, oh, this person used force. So yeah, no kidding again. So it all depends on those individual relationships and those 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 individual interactions that these people have on a day to day basis. See, and I think we get lost in that too. You know, we, we get lost in trying to come up with this department wide thing that has to happen to build this trust. That trust only comes from every single individual encounter with every cop and every person. It's not. It's 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 one person can undo that whole, you know, six months, eight months, two years worth of trust building. So it's every encounter, every day, all the time. And that's where that trust and transparency comes from. All right. So I'm going to go back a little bit. And so JC had a comment earlier. And let me jump in on that. And he says uh, to something that we had said earlier, he said, agree. But how about the other side of the coin that needs to be addressed? It's not one-sided. How about the community's role in dealing with the police? The family structure needs to be seriously addressed it starts at home. So I will uh, I will start with Ruben. So how do you end how do you address that side of the coin? It sounds great that you're creating this environment. It seems like it's a great place to work, this, that, and the other thing. But at some point, like I like I alluded to earlier, only so much of the onus can go on the police. Mm -hmm. So how would you address some of JC's concerns? Well, look, you if you're thinking we're gonna go into a community and suddenly the the two-family rate is going to go up from 25 to 60. That's not our role, right? That, that, that's a difficult thing to solve. But can we serve for some of these young men and women as a father figure when we're there? Yes. Can we empower the community and entrust them and give them the responsibility that they should have within that community to, to kind of defend themselves and, and, and protect each other? Yes. But you can only do that when we have trust. And we have a, uh, an established dialogue that we can have with each other. So, you know, the one approach is, you know, when you have all these community meetings and, and things that are going on, they should be for the purpose of educating each other. So this is what's happening in your community because you may not know. And here's our expectation of what you can do to help. And here's what you can expect us to do to address the situation. Listen, I've always said police work is temporary. Right, except for the two or three people that you're going to arrest that are going to go away for life, everyone else is coming back. So the only thing we can do as a police department is provide a community a window of opportunity, right? But by, by doing some strategic enforcement, some you know targeting of gangs, et cetera, et cetera. I, I got, I bought you four to five years. What can you do as a community so when these individuals come back and they will come back, that they will notice a marked difference in the community they left. Because if they come back and everything's the same, hey, everything's the same. Let me just go back to my corner and do my thing. If they show up and they realize the community is now empowered, right, the community has visibly changed, right, and make them feel uncomfortable, then there's an, there's an opportunity for them to adjust because they're no longer welcome. So empowering the community, the relationships are, are key there, and um, strategic police work. And what I mean by that is smart police work, not high enforcement police work, that's a big difference. All right, fair enough. I'm going to redirect over to Ed. Ed, same question. The other side of the coin needs to be addressed. It's not one-sided. How about the community's role in dealing with the police? The family structure needs to be seriously addressed. What do you say to that? Again, I, we, there's nothing we can do as police, you're right, about family structure. But we're, again, we're talking about relationships and we're talking about the community when they do not when when they don't find us to be legitimate when you know when they are resistant to us when they 
are, are you know are against, you know seemingly against us. That's fear driven, and and we do have a responsibility to mitigate that fear. Every person on this earth, again, I've been around the world doing this stuff, right? We all have the same one thing in common. We all have the desire to survive. And if I think you you mean me or my family harm, I'm not going to support you. I'm not going to trust you. All those things that we need to have a strong community aren't going to be there. So when I see, you know, especially we're talking about the police reform stuff and, you know, some of the officers are really kind of, you know, I guess it's fear of the unknown on our part too, right? But not embracing this opportunity to say, look, this, we are not who you think we are. And we might have been able to change their family structure, but we can change the, the, the tone and the temper of that community by having them not be afraid when they see us. Like my biggest pet peeve is, you know, we protect and serve. But explain to me this, why the hell is every single person's blood pressure and heart rate go up when they see us and they're scared of us if we're supposed to be the protectors? Makes zero sense. We're not walking the talk. We, we need to change it up a little bit. And, and, and that is our responsibility. All right. Fair enough. So let me ask you a question. So you, you get the opportunity. A brand new city pops out of nowhere, pops out of the Atlantic Ocean, and they need a police department. They got to start from ground zero. What are the top three things that you're doing to build this police department from scratch, Ruben? Well, I would say number one is is not build the police department yet, right? Let, let, let's try to get an understanding of who lives there. How did we all end up here? What was our common goal? What was what drove us all to this location, whether we were born and raised there or we found it, hey, this would be a nice place to raise my family. Embrace the community, making sure that, that the network of the community is there, right? And you minimize the need for police. So, that, let's, that's really, so, so let me just jump in. So let's just yeah. say gain an understanding of the community. Let's call that the first step. Mm -hmm. Where are you going from there? Well, second thing is um, making sure everyone understands what their role is as a village, right? You've heard that saying, right? It takes a village. So what's your role as a member of this village, not just to protect your family and your neighbors, but the kids down the street, the kids from the high school, we all have responsibilities. We can't just say, hey, I, this is not my problem. I'm gonna call the police. No, you know, if you got a, a group of kids who are throwing the ball in front of your yard and you're upset because they're making noise, don't call the police, go out there and see who they are. Hey, how you guys doing? And maybe put up a basketball rim for them, right? So that's the idea. Every police department should be working to put themselves out of business. I wish we reached the point where you get to a town, let's say Harvard, and you go, man, we don't need the police anymore, right? So we should be working to put ourselves out of business. And, and the last part is then from that community, identifying individuals who truly care about other human beings, Right, it's the number one rule if you want to work at Northeastern. How much do you value other people? Very simple question. Mm -hmm. I can train you to do everything else, but I can't teach you to be a good person. So then identify from within that community people who truly care about other individuals and, and, and want to take on the role of being a police officer in a whole new life. I'm not talking about law enforcement. I'm talking about I'm here so when the community can't deal with a specific problem, and then they entrust me with the power of coming in here, the authority, I would say, to come in here and make things better, right? Better from a perspective of lifting up the community member that needs it, right? So that, that would be my thing. So I'm not even talking about police department until step six, seven, or eight. You got me at three, but I'm putting it way back there. All right. Fair enough. Ed, I'm going to ask you the same question. You are in charge of developing this, this police department for this new uh, community. What are your first three steps? Well, again, I, I hate to sound like a broken record. And trust me, this is not a cop-out. But that's right. Ruben and I read from the same sheet of music. Um, it, that's where you start. I mean, this to me, it all starts with identifying what is it that we value as a community? What is it that's most important to us? How do we go about maintaining that? And are we clear what the rules are how, with how we're going to handle when people deviate from those th that that those accepted values and those accepted norms that we've developed. So right now, again, it, when, when people start to look at um, at, at, at inequities within their within their um, 
respective communities or towns. If we built this new place, you know, is it th the idea of there being some sort of utopia is not going to work. There's always going to be some inequities, right? The, the haves and the have nots, that those things happen. How can we develop uh, as a community a mechanism to mitigate those things that lead to the later um, crimes, the property crimes, the theft, because people don't have the same access to resources other people may have. So it's, it's, I would more view it less as a police agency, as more of a forum to where we can discuss where we want to be and who we are, and then collectively come together with how we decide what we're going to do when those things start to break down. Again, you know, in, in our system right now, by the time we make a law and a rule, it's too late. The negative behavior has already embedded itself so deeply that we needed to make a rule. It's too late. We've missed it. So kind of, uh, you know, on, on the front end of this is identifying what we want things to look like and how do we get it from moving from there at all. All right. Outstanding. One thing that um, that I really like that both of you said was involving the community in the, in the process of developing this this thing. I think that's of the utmost importance. And that, to me, when we talk about policing reimagined, that has to be at the forefront of reimagining policing is just redefining what a partnership is between a police department and the community. You know, Ruben, you touched upon it earlier. We're going to go down the road. Building trust before a bad incident happens. So, Ruben, since you brought it up, I'm going to have you go first. Tell us why in about 90 seconds or so, tell us why it's important to build trust with the community prior to the onset of a bad incident. Well, look, because we will not survive without the community support, right? And, and, and there's plenty of places in this country where crimes are solved because of the community's input. And they come forward to, to let us know what's happening. So, so we have to build that trust. If not, you're going to fail miserably. So, I mean, look, at the end of the day, um, you know, we, we, we're like in different silos. You know, you got the community here, you got the police here, and you got the criminals, right? The only one who benefits from us not joining forces is the criminal. And, and that, that's the bottom line. So, you know, trust, look, we, we can go over this over and over and over again, but it, it's the only answer to being an effective police department is through building this trust, um, you know, with the people that you serve and, and knowing that, that they have people who truly care about them and that you're looking for their best interest in mind. And over time, you're going to see that that relationship building and the trust increasing. Um, you know, and how it's going to happen, Dean, I'll be honest with you. Look, when you look at it as a whole and you say, wow, the police, right, 18,000 uh, police departments, how are we going to fix this? Well, there is no police. And the chief has alluded to this. There is no such thing. There is your police in your town where you work, where you live, and wherever place you work. So how we build trust, kind of minimize it. Don't, don't look at it as a whole, but say, we're going to build trust in one police department at a time, one officer at a time, one engagement at a time. That's where it starts. So All right. if you break it down that way, man, that, that's the beginning of great things happening. And, 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 you know, it's been done, it's being done, and it's been successful. We just have to find where. And then chiefs have to have the courage to come out and say, Hey, I may not know. I, I see. I hear what you're saying, but I don't know how to do it. And then let's go. You know, me, me and Ed will show up and help you. All right, that's fair. That's a great response, Ed. I'm going to follow the same question over to you. Yeah. So uh, the whole trust thing with me is, uh, you know, I think people we talk about it all the time, but we're not even clear what that is a lot of times. You know, some people say, "Oh, what's trust?" And they say, "Well, you know, you can count on somebody." It doesn't necessarily mean trust. You know, and I always use the example in my class, like, you know, why, why is it that one of your, your neighbor can invite you to a cookout with a swimming pool and have free beer and free hamburgers on a hot day, but you don't like this person, so you don't go. But another person will call you up at 3 a.m. in the middle of a blizzard, broken down on the side of the road, and you will jump out of bed and you'll go get that person. And that you will go get that person because you know in a pinch they would come get you. You do for them because you know they would do for you. That's the very basis of trust. And if we're not having our communities that relate that you know that 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 bi-directional relationship of, hey community, I'm here for you. The trust comes with I know that you're there for me too. And, and again, that starts with us showing and, and being honest about um, our strengths. 
being upfront when we screw up because we're human and that part of the human animal is we're going to make mistakes, own it. And then also we do, and, and this again, this is a touchy subject for some people, but reconciling the past. We can't heal until we can admit to our past mistakes and transgressions. Let's shine a light on it. Let's say we messed it up and let's promise each other we're not going to go back there again and let's make a path forward. Gentlemen, I know you can't believe this, but we're down to about four and a half minutes. <laughs> we got to start wrapping up and it's just starting to heat up. First of all, this has been fantastic. I mean, this flew by. I didn't, I didn't, I almost lost track of the time. So, really quick, Ruben, in like 60 to 90 seconds, tell us what projects you got going, what's important to you, what causes should we be on the lookout for? So, look, we're focusing on training, right? And and the interesting thing, everything we're saying has an equivalent within an organization. And we start uh, talk about building trust, building relationships, you know, transparency. You got to ask yourself, does it happen within the organization first, right? Then it could happen outside the organization, right? So, so, so that's an important aspect of what we're doing. Um, you know, look, there's hope on the horizon. I think this whole defund the police, do away with the police is going to start to fade. But shame on us. If we didn't take advantage of what's happened to evolve our profession to, to a more caring, more uplifting member of the community in a process within the community, shame on us. Um, what's happening on Northeastern, we got some exciting stuff going on. I told you the police academy is crucial because we're introducing a whole new way of delivering the content. And we're not changing the curriculum, but we're introducing this whole value system in how we present the curriculum. Right. We're, we still have police academies across this nation training people as if they're heading out to Vietnam. That's not what we're doing here. We need to we need to train people to the for the understanding of how to care for others. Right. So there's a time to introduce stress in our police academy. There's a time to introduce, you know, discipline when necessary. But there's also time to relax the atmosphere and make sure that everyone's open minded and embracing the philosophies. One of the best compliments we got from the last class just graduated last week is they, they said throughout the entire academy, they felt valued throughout the entire academy. And, and you can I can assure you that recruit will be taking that to the streets, making sure others feel valued. So the other thing we're doing is we're putting together a chief's cohort to train chiefs across the nation, working with our, our continuing education department there at Northeastern in, on this exact philosophy, but with more specifics on how it's done and how you can do it. Outstanding, Ruben. Thank you so much for your contributions. I got to jump to Ed. Ed, gotcha. uh, really quick, 60 to 90 seconds, then I'll give the last word. Sure. So for me, I'm looking, again, the training piece is big. I think one of the areas that we've been really struggling with is not training our officers about themselves. You know, there, there are decades and decades of, there's decades of research on human performance, human development. Um, you know, my, my professional education is, um, you know, leadership and organizational development stuff. But we, we, we have measured and we know how to measure human performance and we know what a good learning environment is. We know what training strategies are available for retention of skills and reproduction of skills under stress, yet we don't do it. Similar to, you know, to what Ruben said, we have to change the way, not necessarily what we're teaching, the way we teach it to make sure that it's reta uh, retained and can be replicated when, when need be under stress. And uh, you know, the, the thought that you can do stress training by yelling and screaming about something that is not directly applied or directly connected to a skill is not going to help you when, when, when zero hour comes, you know, you have to make that tough decision. Uh, the other piece is really, um, again, that, that mindfulness piece I, I spoke of early on, having officers understand their own bodies, understand what they're going through, understand what they're feeling and, and understanding you know, the process of their decisions. Uh, their decision making, the, the weaknesses uh, that they have in their recall and memory. All of these things, if we better know ourselves, we can better recognize what's happening in the moment and hopefully slow things down and make better decisions. Well, gentlemen, you brought us right up to time. Again, thank you so much for taking time away from your families during your busy season. I know, Ruben, um, this is your time, like I said earlier, for you to exhale, take a breath, and uh, Take stock of what, what worked, what didn't, and then get ready for the next year. And Ed, I know that you got a lot of big things cooking. Um, 
and we're going to be seeing a whole lot more of you uh, in the social media and the lecturing circuit. So that's going to do it for tonight, folks. Again, if you like the content, please look at the bottom of the screen. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on all your favorite major podcast channels. Please like, subscribe, and share with all with all of your social media networks because every little bit helps and it helps us keep getting these great conversations out that everybody needs to have so for everybody here on the panel i want to wish everybody a good night and we'll catch you again next week take care everybody hashtag thank supply you, and good night thank you dean